I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Linz. Let's pray. Father, come um, prune us now with your word. Come speak to us through your spirit. Lord, come direct our, our thinking, our minds, our hearts, our lives for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It's good to have a bit of response. There we go. Um, gravity is amazing. Have I got my, have I got my screens? Let's see if this is, da, 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 da. doesn't matter. If it doesn't, we'll see. I'll move on. Is it going to work? We got, it's PowerPoint having a moment. Ah, I think we're good. Aha, there we go, good, thank you very much. Um, gravity, um, I was going to talk about gravity. Gravity is amazing, isn't it? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was stood with my family on the beach uh, in Cornwall, in fact, I was just sharing um, with somebody what we were doing, what we did, and one thing we did over the summer, we both went to Cornwall, there we go. And we were watching the sun go down over the ocean, and that's Joshua there running around. Um, it was the heat wave week, um, which is a great week to be out of London. <laughs> uh, but it was perfect in Cornwall, um, even with COVID, as we had. Um, we spent some amazing evenings just kind of messing around in the sea and the surf. Till it got dark, it was that warm. You could just sort of be on the beach. It didn't get cold. And I was reflecting afterwards on the kind of incredible influence that the moon has on our planet. This celestial lump of, of rock and dust quarter of a million miles away that we um trying i was kind of hoping that we would have managed to launch artemis by now but it hasn't happened it doesn't quite tie in don't worry but this uh, this incredible body of rock and dust which creates the tides and brings us the, the the sea in and out and uh, with it the the waves that were the focus of all of our fun that's what the moon's gravity does and it's, uh, it's easy to think of the moon in those terms as kind of controlling the earth and life on it. But of course, to look at it from that perspective kind of misses the point because the truth is it's the other way around, really. We stand on the earth looking at the moon, noticing its effects, but the moon's only there because of the gravity of the earth that is holding it there. 
And sometimes there's a bigger picture to the one that we carry around with us most of the time. And our understanding is often shaped by a zoomed-in picture of our daily lives. But you can only really interpret that zoomed-in picture when you understand the, the wider picture and context. We spend a huge amount of our time, energies, intellect, trying to figure out how should I live my life. That's a common, perhaps one of the most ancient of human questions. How do I live? And there are any number of people, influencers, ideologies, books, podcasters in the world telling us this is how to live your life. Either explicitly or implicitly, from kids' cartoons to stand-up comedians to poli politicians to social media influencers, everyone is offering us an answer to the question, how do we live our lives? And the truth is, we, we kind of want that, don't we? We look for guidance, for a framework. We want someone to tell us, this is the secret. This is how to live well. This is how I can have peace. This is how... Um, this is what I can do with my anxiety. This is how I should handle my desires. This is how I can live joyfully. And sometimes in the church, I think we've been guilty of missing the point to a certain extent with Jesus' teachings. Maybe not exactly missing the point, but kind of missing the scope, the implications of what he said and taught and how he lived. And yes, at the heart of the gospel is the news that Jesus came to die, that we might be forgiven our sin, receive the gift of eternal life, or life of the age, as Jesus called it. But the implications of that salvation were never meant to be kind of box-ticked, debt-free, I'm free to just go about my business. In the Gospels with Jesus, a moment of healing or a moment of forgiveness is always followed by a call, an invitation, if you like, to step into his kingdom. Doing life his way. Not to earn his favor. We've got that. He loves you. He always has. But to experience life as it was meant to be with Jesus as king. The way of Jesus as Christianity was more commonly known for the first few hundred years. It's not designed to restrict you, spoil your fun, take away your freedom, leave you unfulfilled, as the world sometimes portrays it it's the way of the creator intended to bless us to make us a blessing to others to our communities to the, the, the whole of creation that we are part of jesus offers incredible unexpected answers to the questions how do i live well how do i die well and the heart of it is good news the best news and the church exists to proclaim that news but also to model it to demonstrate it by practicing the way of jesus in the world today and despite appearances the moon doesn't control the earth the earth controls the moon our lives are under the influence of a of a much greater influencer than anything that the world offers and our faith our story our gospel is that this God of love stepped down from heaven, stepped into this world to become one of us, to be with us, to save us, and to show us how to live. As I said this morning, we're beginning a month's teaching on 
um, our vision as All Souls Church. You know, over the past, what, 16 months since I arrived, we've been thinking and talking and praying into this question, where is God leading us in this season? And the truth is, it's, it's been a really hard time to discern vision. Um, you don't need me to tell you that these last years have been often changing, chaotic, disorienting time. They say, don't make big decisions in times of desolation. Tell me the last time there wasn't a sense of desolation in the world. Mental health crises, pandemics, economic, political turmoil, major war in Europe, refugees crisis, heat waves, droughts, wildfires, energy crisis, cost of living crisis. Take your pick. We are facing some genuinely existential threats right now. But amidst this chaos, the threads have been coming together, I believe, leading us to the understanding that we are here, All Souls Church exists to live life Jesus' way. To be light and life and love in a world of darkness and death and disconnection. We are here to be disciples of Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus. And I'll share more about how that's come to be our focus over the coming weeks and months, but let's just jump into this passage of John 15, which we're going to make the, the subject of our teaching for the next four Sundays and this process of outlining vision. So some context, John 15 is smack bang in the middle of what is known as Jesus's farewell discourse. It's his final words to his disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. And to understand what it means for us to live in the way of Jesus as his disciples in the world today, we need to understand the dynamics or something of the dynamics of Jesus and his disciples in their culture. You know, it doesn't work to sort of say Jesus's disciples were sent to fetch a donkey. Maybe we should go and fetch a donkey. Um, you'll be glad to hear, um, I guess, unless you really like donkeys, in which case, you know, go get a donkey. That's fine. Um, just do it in your own time. Um, sorry, this is all your own time, just to be clear. What I'm saying... Um, is that we have to do a little bit of work, don't we, to translate the there and then to the here and now. So I'm really just going to focus on one verse from this reading today. And that's verse 8, and it says this. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is what Jesus is teaching in a nutshell, but we'll just take those three things in reverse order. So first... It's about being disciples, and we'll see what that means in a minute. But just to say that the translation in the NIV is a bit funny here. Now, I'm not an expert on New Testament Greek, but this is a passage I know really, really well, and I spent a lot of time studying it and translating it, and the word that's translated as um, showing yourselves, it's ginomai, if you're interested, is translated pretty much everywhere else in the Bible as becoming. Um, in fact, most translations of the Bible write this as becoming my disciples it's the process of coming into being I, I had a whole section on this but i had to cut it um, it's got something to do with middle preference verbs and the wizard of oz ask me afterwards so it's about um first about becoming his disciples second it's about bearing fruit in keeping with that which is really the bible's answer to the question how do i live well we'll get on to fruit later in the series and third what's all of this for for the glory of God, Jesus' Father and ours. Okay, this is nothing new. In fact, this is about as 
old as it gets for All Souls Church. Just go and look at the foundation stone um, at the front wall as you came in, just between the two doors. Placed there when the church was built. The top line reads, for the glory of God. Except the carving wasn't so great, so it looks like it says, for the glory of Cod. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Go and have a look. We know what they meant. At least I think we know what they meant. (laughs) So simply put, the goal is to become disciples of Jesus, bearing fruit which glorifies God. That's kind of the vision, but it begs some questions, doesn't it? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What sort of fruit are we talking about? How can we be more fruitful? Do we all just need to try a little harder, try and be a bit more loving or more joyful or more peaceful? Because I'm, I'm already trying pretty hard, <laughs> and it, I'm not sure it's always working. And those questions we'll start to address over the next three Sundays. But I want to use the rest of the time this morning just to drill down into this idea of discipleship and being disciples. So what did discipleship mean in first century Israel? That's where we've got to start. And I just want to throw out a few qualifications before we do this. So like everybody, I am to a great extent uh, a product of what's around me, the influences that have shaped me. Um, this includes my theology, my approach to the Bible, my teaching. I just want to acknowledge some key influences on me um, as uh, some of this teaching has come together. So John Mark Comer, who you may have heard me mention, formerly uh, leader of Bridgetown Church, is someone who has spoken really practically into this subject of, of discipleship, a kind of a how. And some of what follows I've, I've uh, taken from his teaching. That teaching in turn was built on the foundation of, uh, in particular, Dallas Willard, who, um, again, I've quoted before and I will again, If you're looking for a a kind of deep and profound read on this kind of stuff, try Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. Um, It's heavy going, but it's superb. And it's probably one of the most influential Christian books of of recent years. And other people that have shaped my thinking and teaching on what it means to live uh, life Jesus' way are Ruth Haley Barton and John Ortberg, whose book Soul Keeping we looked at this time last year. For those of you who were here last year, you may remember that. So that said, discipleship. Now, discipleship is not a word that is in common usage today. Um, We think of it as an exclusively Christian word. You do a Google search and it defines a disciple as, quote, a personal follower of Christ. But the concept of discipleship didn't start or end with Jesus. In ancient Greece, arguably the birthplace of discipleship, Aristotle was a disciple of Plato. And Plato was a disciple of Socrates. And bound up in the concept was this idea of a student and his teacher. His, because it was an exclusively male concept until Jesus came along and took on female disciples. That was revolutionary. And Jesus was a lot of things. He was son of God, Messiah, Lamb of God, son of man. But In the New Testament, he's most commonly referred to by those he meets as teacher or rabbi, which is the Hebrew word for teacher. The 90 times Jesus is addressed in the the Gospels, he's um, called teacher or rabbi more than 60. And Jesus wasn't the only teacher or rabbi with disciples in first century Israel. Far from it. These rabbis would go from place to place sharing their teachings 
which were known at the time as their yoke. And the Hebrew word for disciple is uh, talmudim, and it can be translated as student or follower, although those words have different connotations, I think, in today's world. Uh, Willard and Comer both suggest that the best translation for talmudim uh, in our world today is apprentice. One who learns by working under and alongside. Now, there are three levels to the kind of Jewish education system at the time. Level one was Beit Sefer, I think. I'm not quite sure about the pronunciation, but that's how we'll say it. Um, Which is basically, think, primary school. Um, If you're a boy or a girl, uh, the syllabus is to learn the first five books of the scriptures, the Torah, off by heart by the age of 12. That's stage one. I, was, uh, I tried to learn Colossians once, and that was hard enough. Um, but that's your goal, the first five books of the Bible. At the end of that, you're 12. If you're a girl, that would be your formal education would have been over then. For most boys, the same was true. You go and take up a role in your father's business. But if you're among the best of the boys, you'd progress to level two, Beit Talmud. And now you've got to learn pretty much the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. That's our Old Testament. I've been sort of doing Bible in a year. I've literally just, in the last week or two, got to the end of the Old Testament. That's just reading it. I don't know about memorizing it. That's just crazy. And if you make it to the end of that, you now face an interview, a kind of interrogation with your teacher, a little bit like a viva today. And only if you pass that, you get to level three. And you hear these words from your rabbi, your teacher. They'll say to you, come follow me. Come be my disciple. And from that moment, the student becomes the teacher's shadow, living, learning, and teaching alongside them, making other disciples. And again, in the language of the day, becoming fishers of people. So becoming a disciple of a rabbi. It was kind of like getting into Oxford or Cambridge on a full scholarship at the personal invitation of the professor. It was rare and it was hard and it was only for the very best. So when this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, rocks up and starts calling ordinary people to come follow him, it's a radical departure from the norm. Mark 1, 16, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, fishermen. Come, follow me, he says. Come, be my disciples, and I will make you fishers of people. Two guys who probably hadn't got past level one. Jesus is called to to discipleship. To Philip and Nathaniel, to Matthew, to the rich young ruler, to another religious leader. Jesus says, Come, follow me. Come be my disciples. Take up your cross and follow me. I'm the light of the world, Jesus said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Jesus' answer to the question, how do I live well? Come, follow me. Come and see. So what does a disciple do? Willard said it was, meant organizing your life around three basic priorities. So one, be with your rabbi, your teacher. Two, become like your rabbi. And three, 
do what they did. That was the disciple job spec. That's discipleship in a nutshell. So therefore, to be a disciple of Jesus, in essence, means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. And we'll be unpacking those three aspects, I guess, over the next three Sundays. That's a summary of where we're going. You know, this isn't one of those things that was for them then and not for us now. One of the last things Jesus says to his disciples before he leaves them in Matthew's gospel is, go make disciples of all peoples. He doesn't say go make Christians. Actually, the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. Disciple appears 268. Go make disciples, people who will be with him, become like him, who will do what he did, which is, in turn, make more disciples. And this invitation is open to everybody. This is for everyone. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, this means you and me. Following Jesus isn't about intellectual assent or about ticking the right box on a census. The call of Jesus is to be disciples, fishers of people, making disciples. Obligatory Dallas Willard quote. The greatest issue facing the world today, he wrote this 30 years ago, by the way, a bit more. Greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. That's what the church should be, a platform for helping you follow Jesus in your everyday life, in whatever you do, however you spend your time and your energy and talents. The church should be all about learning to live our lives as disciples of Jesus in community. We're almost done, but I wonder what you're thinking. I wonder what questions you have. You might be thinking, you know, what does this mean in practice? What does following Jesus really look like? What's the difference ultimately from the mainstream? That's a great question. Perhaps you're wondering, how am I supposed to be with Jesus? I mean, it's not like he walks on the earth these days. How am I supposed to become like him? We'll get into that over the next few weeks. Maybe you're worried about the implications. That's okay. Don't be anxious. Jesus said his yoke is easy. His way of life offers the peace, the joy, the hope, which is pretty hard to come by in the world today that we all seek, though. You know, maybe you're thinking, is this something more? Something more on the to-do list? You know, another hoop to jump through? Aren't I doing enough already? And the answer is yes. Um, because with God, it's never about what we can do for him, what you can do for him. This is not about pleasing or satisfying a God who demands more. It's about receiving all the good that he has for you. And there is always more to that for each of us. 
So as we try to gather, to navigate life, manage the circumstances of our lives, to be disciples of Jesus, you have to recognize that we're in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father who wants good things for you, and he wants to do good things in and through you in his world. That's the invitation of our rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, who says to each of us, come follow me.